Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh. I'm joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? Excellent, David. I'm like elf on the shelf. <laughs> so you're observing me and spying on me wherever I am. That's good. That's. Uh, I'm glad my kids never did that because that was. It's, oh, it's weird and creepy. Yeah, actually. Yeah, okay, so I'm yeah. not like elf on the shelf, but I'm excellent. Thank you. Very- okay. I'm trying to make a, a topical reference, but maybe that was the wrong one. Is, is elf on the shelf? Is is that just an American thing, or do British people do that too? I have no idea. I can't speak for British people. I mean, you've become British more recently than me. (laughs) Yes. Was it on the the life in the UK test? No, it was it was not. The date of Christmas was, but uh, the 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 Elf on the Shelf was not. Uh, I think Elf on the Shelf is is an American thing. It might have migrated around the world thanks to social media. American cultural imperialism. It's it's everywhere. Right. not quite sure how to transition from that to our topic today. But, yeah, uh, indeed. Sorry. Uh, so, uh, over the summer, uh, Attorney General Bill Barr announced that the, the uh, federal government would resume uh, executions of prisoners on death row. And what we've seen in the intervening months uh, and in the months to come left in the Trump administration is a plan uh, to execute uh, federal prisoners at an unprecedented rate, at least in modern history. And we thought this would be a good opportunity to uh, talk about both that particular policy change, but also to reflect on the history of capital punishment in the uh, United States more broadly. Yeah, we should say that. So so in the past few days, I think since the end of last week, we're recording on Monday now, uh, Brandon Bernard was executed, uh, as well as a man named Alfred Bourgeois. And they, they were both executed for horrendous, heinous crimes, there's no doubt about it, mm. uh, that were committed. But they're the first federal executions since 2003. Uh, sorry, there were executions. There have been executions. There were one or two executions. Since July. Since the summer, since July, excuse me. Uh, but uh, the Trump administration has three more planned uh, before uh, President Trump leaves office in, in January. So there's a spate of executions now of five uh, in the waiting weeks of the Trump administration. We should hasten to add that these are federal executions uh, because the, right. the federal government can only execute people under certain circumstances. Uh, but but uh, Donald Trump seems to be quite keen to, to uh, see these executions carried out uh, during this um, transition period, which itself is a break with precedent. Um, the New York Times reported it breaks 130 year precedent of not mm. having no execute federal executions during the presidential transition period. Right. And, and you know, the, the federal government hasn't executed very many people in recent years at all. In fact, since um, the 1970s, I think they before the Trump administration, before this summer, they only had executed, I think, three or four people. Uh, so it's it's a, a real uh, escalation and change in, in federal policy in terms of, of of what the Trump administration has done since the summer. Uh, and one thing I, I want to point out, just sort of while we're on the before we get to the history of this, uh, you know, the Trump administration, Tr- Donald Trump's uh, affinity for the death penalty seems to have very deep roots. Uh, his uh, debut, if you will, into uh, the political realm. Uh, you can date to 1989 with the Central Park Five, where he responded to that by putting an ad in all the uh, full page ads in all the major New York newspapers. The headline of which the bold print said, bring back the death penalty. Um, can you give our listeners, David, a bit of background on that case? Oh, sure. So um, this is a case that's uh, uh, it's quite vivid in my memory, um, even though I was. 12 at the time, um, because I was living in New York City and, and uh, I uh, actually not far from, from where this case uh, took place. Um, so the case involved a, a, a jogger in, in Central Park um, a, uh, who, was, who was violently uh, attacked and raped uh, in uh, jogging in the evening. Um, the New York police arrested uh, five uh, black and Hispanic teenagers uh, who they uh, claim were vict- guilty of, of, of committing this crime. Turns out they were not guilty. They were completely innocent. They found the perpetrator who was somebody else, but they only found that perpetrator years later. Uh, but there was an immediate call by, by and Donald Trump was leading the call to, to uh, bring very swift justice to these uh, five teenagers, and that's what led him to publish this um, 
ad in the news full page ad in the newspaper calling for their execution. Um, and am I correct that there was no death? The death penalty wasn't legal in New York State at that time. It's since been brought back. Is that correct? Uh, the death penalty was not legal in New York State at the time. I don't know whether right. it's legal now in New York State, but uh, um, you know, and 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 that was a particular moment, you know, politically, or where, where there was a lot of there was a very high crime rate in New York. The crime rate nationally was very high. There was a move back toward, towards in favor of the death penalty uh, in, in many parts of the country in the, the late 80s. Um, you know, there's the whole discussion at the time, of, uh, because that happened a couple of years later, about super predators that the Clintons got involved in. Um, and so that sort of spoke to that kind of, of uh, uh, support for the death penalty that existed this and then. And of course, the, the as I mentioned, the five people who, who Trump wanted to execute were, were later found not only uh, uh, were found not to be involved in the case at all, not in the rape at all. And so uh, they were later exonerated. Trump has not, by the way, ever apologized to those five men for um, calling for their execution. Um, I'm not quite sure what his grounds are for not apologizing to them, but... Uh, I well, I mean, sorry, I'm not trying to be flippant here. I mean, uh, clearly Donald Trump's MO is never to apologize. Apologize, yes. Yeah. Uh, even even if, yeah, anyway. Uh, so let's take take this back uh, before before the Central Park Five and before uh, 1989. Let's go back to, you know, 1689 or so. <laughs> um, what, what, was, what was the death penalty like uh, in the colonial era? Uh, well... <laughs> There's very little crime in the colonial era, although there are th some things are crimes that we wouldn't recognize as crimes, um, you know, blasphemy and things like that. But but th there's relatively little <laughs> crime. And so there are relatively few executions. There are a few, however, that are quite notorious. And, and you refer to 1689. In 1692, we get the Salem witchcraft trials in mm. which I believe it's 19 people are executed and another three die as a result of their involvement in the in the trials. And that's probably the most notorious they're not all killed at once but sort of mass execution or moment mm. of execution in american history probably prior to the executions during the you know during the in in mankato after the or during the civil war is that would that be true i mean uh, we'll get to this sorry i'm taking this yeah, out, so, of, so, out of out of well term. it depends on what you consider an execution but yeah the 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 uh, you know, the people who 38 who were uh, hanged in Mankato in, 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 in 1862 is, is the sort of the largest mass execution in American history. But that um, is a mass execution in the sense that it happens at once, whereas the Salem yes. witchcraft trials happen over a course, a matter of months. So there is a key difference there. Although there are relatively few executions in terms of somebody has a trial, is found guilty and is subsequently executed uh, in, in the colonial period, there is, of course, the use of state violence, mm. um, although the state itself isn't very pronounced, but the, the, it, it's, its ability to, to, to muster violence or, or master and, and, and deploy violence is significant, especially with regard to enslaved people and indigenous people. So we see that as a kind of constant in colonial life. Mm. But in terms of kind of trials resulting in executions, those are relatively rare. Although there are a few instances, if we go to the early national period that are quite notable. So after Gabriel's rebellion in Virginia and the very at the very turn of the 19th century, there's a quite widespread series of executions associated with, with, with Gabriel's rebellion. You see it later um, in your period, David. And Denmark Vesey's plot and things like that, but uh, um, so, so and, we, and we, the we, big slave rebellion in in Louisiana in, in 1811, they right. not only execute but they put up the you know they 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 cut off the heads of the the supposed perpetrators and put them up and down the Mississippi as a deterrent. Um, so right, and after King Philip's War in 1676, for example, Metacom. Mm -hmm. King Philip is is beheaded and his head is, is placed outside of uh, the Plymouth settlement in, in in what will become Massachusetts. Although again, the, the colonists would say that was a war. It's different. It's not the same thing as it. You know, I think when we're talking about capital punishment, in order to narrow this slightly for the purposes of today's discussion, I think well, we can talk about state violence. I think we're we're really focusing on the kind of judicial killings in the sense of there's a judicial process that results in execution. Mm. Is that fair? Yeah. As a yeah, working, I, I think it is. But you know, th sort of thinking about you know the wh where 
capital punishment fits when we're talking about the colonial period? You know, like what are the alternatives? I think is always a sort of helpful thing to think about throughout this discussion about you know what's the alternative to to, to capital uh, punishment and and you know the idea of lifetime imprisonment was something that that didn't exist in the colonial era. Well, you need uh, prisons. You need you need prisons places to you incarcerate own. people. But you do have things like stocks. You do have public whippings. You do have um, you know other means of, of punishment. You have branding and, and other kinds of things that are going on. So the um, and I think they understood capital punishment. You know, in, as part of that spectrum of punishments, that, of which you know, in, uh, corporal punishments that that one could inflict upon somebody. Yeah, I mean, I think, David, if I can just jump in there and follow up, follow up on that a little bit. Of course, the colonies were where Britain sent people <laughs> as an alternative to capital punishment. So, so, mm. so the colonies, especially in the kind of early 18th century, Georgia in particular, is a place where Britain sends, banishes people mm. as an alternative to executing them. Uh, and, and this will carry on, of course, in Australia after American independence. But apropos of... of um, physical uh, sort of corporal punishments and branding and mm. slitting people's nostrils and things like that. There's a whole kind of catalog of, of, of punishments in the colonial period that are pretty gruesome. Uh, Jefferson, as part of his, he participates in the, in the, he's a member of the committee that redrafts all of Virginia's laws after the Declaration of Independence. It's called the Committee for the Revisal of the Laws. And he loves this because it's a really interesting kind of constitutional project to kind of remake the laws for an independent republic. And one of the things he dra he's the main draftsman for is Virginia's um, penal code hmm. in the mid 17s or latter part of the 1770s. And Historians, I think, have misread this because they often look at the kind of punishments that he has in there and say these are barbaric. This is brutal. You know, this this flies in the face of Jefferson as this would be enlightened philosoph, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you have to see what the penal code was. So the the things that Jefferson retained, and it is things like slitting nostrils and so on, mm. are the milder punishments that are on, on the books in Virginia. So as he sees it, it is an attempt to reform the penal code and the uh, the range of corporal punishments available. But you're right. You, your larger question is issue that you raised, David, is a good one, which is what is the alternative to capital punishment in the colonial and early national period? Well, there, there, there ain't a whole lot, really. You either execute people or you brand them or cut off, lop off fingers or whatever. Mm. Uh, but, but that's about it because there is there's no institutional framework for long-term punishment of individuals. Fortunately, in most of these societies, there's relatively little crime in the way we would define it. There are, there's violence, we know that. Mm. But it, there's relatively little interpersonal crime which requires these punishments. Or at least a crime that ends up in the court system that culminates in a... Right. Yeah, which is a subset of, you know, we can think about all the kinds of ways in which communities are, are policing themselves be above and beyond um, the court system. Which um, is a characteristic of early modern societies and, right. and in fact, pre-modern societies around the world. Uh, but, but in, so it's a kind of transitional moment for the pre-United States and then early United States is in this transitional moment when these judicial processes are being created. Now you mentioned Jefferson, you know, rewriting the the penal code in Virginia, and I, I guess the Revolutionary era is, era is one of the times in which people start to sort of try to sort of deal with the death penalty and think about where it fits and think about punishment more broadly. I mean, it factors into the Constitution in a few places. What's well, implied in the? Yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, because they, they talk about, I guess, execution for for treason in the Constitution. Um. You know, but they also talk about cruel and unusual punishment and, and a, a prohibition on that. So, so there's um, clearly some thought going on during the revolution about about what's the role of of punishment on a broad sense, but also specifically about capital punishment um, in the revolution yeah. in the constitutional convention. Sure, um, you're right. The constitution stipulates that you can be executed for treason. 
and to some extent, uh, the revolution of, is about a lot of things, but one of the things it's about is creating a new system and a new legal regime. And loyalty to that regime is really, really important in part because it can't be guaranteed. You know, the, the, the war of independence was a civil war. It divided Americans. It divided the people of what would become the United States in all kinds of ways. Uh, we didn't see, although there is violence perpetrated for, uh, you know, on political grounds during the War of Independence and, and both before and after it, uh, we don't see mass execution of loyalists in the main, um, which, is, which is interesting, although we do see prescription of loyalists and seizure of their property and so on. But so on one hand, making treason uh, against the United States a, a, uh, an offense punishable by capital punishment makes sense in the context of creating a new regime that has to command loyalty mm. or wants to command loyalty. You are right, though. This is also a moment of reform. Uh, you know, the, the kind of reforms I was alluding to in terms of Jefferson, we're seeing this in Europe during the Enlightenment mm. as well in the late 18th century. There's a belief that a lot of these punishments are barbaric and something needs to be done about them. And while they can't be completely prohibited, they should only be used in very limited circumstances. And the Eighth Amendment's of the Constitution in the Bill of Rights, prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment would seem to be of a piece with that. On the other hand, the Fifth Amendment, which is the one that guarantees trial by jury and, and um, you know uh, concerns about how how um, evidence is gathered, etc., also says that you can't be convicted of a capital crime without being brought before a grand jury, and. The implication of that being that there are capital, capital crimes. crimes right. So, so, so the capital crimes are embedded in the Constitution elsewhere. So there's a kind of contradiction in the Constitution. I hope people are sitting down while they're listening to this. Who knew that? <laughs> because the American Constitution has contradictions in it between the prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment and the assumption, I think. I think it's an implication that capital crimes are uh, acceptable. And in your period, of course, in the 14th Amendment, mm. the, the 14th Amendment says you can't be denied life without being uh, subject to due process. So, so, so again, that's there's a recognition, there's an implied recognition there that there are crimes for which the state can take your life. Sure. Well, I mean, the, the question that I guess becomes what is cruel and unusual punishment and, and does the death penalty sort of fall into that, you know, and we think about sort of the enlightenment that's embodied in the revolution or the enlightenment that, um, you know, across Europe, they're also having the, these conversations about, you know, do we execute people? What's the right way to do it? We think about the guillotine and the French revolution, which, you know, people tend, tend to think of in a horrific way, but was seen at the time as a rep, as a, as a humane way to execute people, as opposed to having, you know, a guy with an ax do it. Um, I don't know whether it is or not, but that's, that's some of the ways in which people. Oh, no, no, uh, that, that, that was, I mean, it was created by a medical doctor and, yeah. and uh, with, with that intention. And if, for those of you who did read the mirror and the light during your, um, during the <laughs> lockdown, you'll know that executions are pretty messy Here's and awkward stuff. and, and um, painful process when you're doing it with an axe or some other method and the guillotine was meant as a reform yeah well i mean i think one of the one of the things that the, if we're sort of talking about big trends with this i mean i think one of the, the questions that that has associated itself with the death penalty really throughout american history is you know what's the way that we can do this in a, a humane and civilized way one that that sort of comports with with this uh, idea about cruel and unusual punishment if that's at all possible right and there i think there are people who are you know, the, the divide right now is whether, you know, any execution is, is inherently cruel and unusual or whether there's some other kind of, of way of, of doing that, whether that's, you know, uh, the, the method of execution or what have you. Well, in global terms, it's certainly unusual because now oh, yeah. it, is a, it is a minority of states and particularly a minority of democracies. That's, uh, there, there's a, we're, the United States is not alone, but it's a minority that's well, still... Yeah, if you look, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think that that's a really good point. I mean, right now, you know, the, the the trend over the past two hundred years, and especially over the past fifty years, has been for for civilized societies, quote unquote, or westerns, whatever framing you want to use. Lots of most most of the world right now does not practice the death penalty, at least in terms of number of countries. The countries that do are are China. Uh, countries in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia, Pakistan does it. There's a couple of places in the Horn of Africa. And the United States, um, you know, so it's a very sort of limited uh, and places like Orion, you know, so there, there's our, our, our 
the, the other countries which which also practice the death penalty are not countries the United States likes to compare itself to under most circumstances. Um, it should so. be said, it's pretty unusual in the United States uh, in the sense that, uh, I don't want this to be mis- misunderstood, mm-hmm. but in, in global terms. Uh, so since the Supreme Court reauthorized the death penalty in 1976, and we'll get to this, I'm sure. Mm. Uh, Since 1977, 7,800 people have been executed in the United States. So it's a relatively, you know, in a country of now 300 and almost 30 million people with more people incarcerated than any place else on earth. It's, it it is a, it is a relatively rare punishment. And well, and I think it's probably the the rarity of it that that some people point to as as one of the things that makes it cruel and unusual is that the people who are, yeah, but we'll we'll get to that. Yeah, Um, and I'm in no way, sorry, I want to make clear I am in no way endorsing the death penalty as a a punishment in stating that. But, you know, when you compare it to the number of people executed in China in a given year, the the United States does not execute that many people. That is not to say that this is not an important legal and, and historical issue to discuss. To be sure. Um, you know, thinking about it in, in the, the 19th century, one of the things I find is that there's really sort of two moments of reform with the death penalty, and they come at very predictable times. Um, yeah, tell us about that, David. Well, so there's there's one moment that's in, uh, that's sort of basically a response to the sort of great awakening that happens in the, in the from like about 1820 to about 1850, 1860. Um, in which you know the death penalty reform is is sort of part of this panoply of reform movements that exist in the antebellum period. It goes alongside with with the prohibition movement. It goes alongside with the abolition movement. It goes alongside with the uh, prison reform movement more broadly. I mean, one of the ideas that's very important in the United States in the antebellum period is this idea that we can build prisons and reform criminals to become productive members of society again. The United States during the antebellum period was the leader in the world uh, for its prisons, which is looking back on it 170 years later, seems surprising given the state of American prisons today, as you point out. Well, Tocqueville's, you know, democracy in America, Alexis Tocqueville writes that because he's visiting the United States in order to visit Prisons, prisons in particular, yeah. because the United States is seen as the model for enlightened incarceration and punishment yes. um and, and charles dickens does the same thing like it's a it's a thing europeans do they come to the united states to see our prisons which uh <laughs> people might do today but for very different reasons um and you know the, the having a penitentiary having a state penitentiary a place to put people was actually a, re- a very new idea uh not only this conception of reform, but as an alternative, thinking what's the alternative to executing somebody? Well, now you have a place where you can put them and detain them. Um, and so that was a relatively uh, new idea. And a number of states make moves during this period to, to radically limit the number of executions. Um, Maine, which of course also has a, a prohibition on the sale of alcohol, the, the so-called Maine laws, is you know one of these places that's trying to reform its, its prison system or create a prison system and uh, reform its uh, capital punishment system. Uh, Michigan, when it uh, gets admitted as a state, abolishes the death penalty. It's in, I think it's in the state constitution. They have never executed anybody in Michigan since the, in, uh, since Michigan became a state in 1846. Um, there's a movement at the same time to limit the number of crimes that are subject to the death penalty. And I think that's one of the, the trajectories we see uh, over the American history more broadly is there used to be a lot of crimes you could be executed for and, and the number of crimes has, has uh, shrunk uh, significantly, although there's been some some ebbing and flowing there. Uh, and there's a movement against uh, public executions that uh, in the, and, and obviously the, the, the trajectory here from state to state is, is different. Every state has sort of its own particular arc to it. Uh, but in the colonial period and in the sort of early national period, executions tended to be public. That is to say, you would execute somebody in the town square, um, you know, uh, and that was true uh, in Europe as well. If you walk around Edinburgh, you can find various places where people were executed that are right in the middle of of town. And these were public events. They were raucous events. They were places where people fights broke out at public executions. They were seen as entertainment, but they were also this very bizarre, um, 
like at least bizarre from our perspective, uh, sort of spectacle. People would go up and, and try to sort of take souvenirs from the the executed uh, person after after their after their death. Um, and so there's a movement to try to making uh, executions private. Uh, and so we see this big reforms happening uh, in the antebellum period. Um, and then we have a, a big reform during the progressive era um, where, and again, the, the trajectory for each state is different. A number of states abandon uh, the death penalty. Um, Kansas, Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, Oregon, uh, Arizona, uh, and a few others. Places, I mean, in those places in the upper Midwest in particular where the progressive tradition was quite strong, strong in, the, yeah. in the 1890s to 1920s, where uh, and, lots and just, of reforms. Oh, to be sure. Uh, and uh, this is also the moment in which uh, the electric chair gets introduced as an alternative to the other modes of execution. Hanging seems to have been the default in most places, although there were firing squads and other things. Um, but the electric chair is, is introduced as a, as a humane alternative relatively speaking, to, to, to hanging. Um, and, and so I think th that's a moment where we see a, a lot of reform. Uh, the thing about these reforms is they don't always stick. Some of the states that abolish the death penalty actually then reintroduce it later. So like Washington and, and Arizona, for instance, abolish the death penalty during the progressive era, but then afterwards they, they reintroduce it. Uh, so, so it's not as if it's always a, a one-way uh, one street. When we get to the 20th century, when, when do you think, what do you think are the big sort of turning points in the 20th century? Well, I guess in the 20th century, we get a series of legal cases. I mean, I mm. guess, I, I guess to continue on with your, your comment about reform, I think that um, the death penalty remains an important kind of sanction, if you will, or threat throughout much of the 20th century, even though there are relatively few executions, particularly at the, at the federal level. Mm. Uh, nonetheless, there's a movement against it, which coincides, especially in the 1960s, with broader reforms of policing in the criminal justice system. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's not surprising that the era that gives us the Miranda, you know, warning, you know, the, mm. the, the Supreme Court mandates that you have to give prisoners, read prisoners their rights when you arrest them is also roughly the era where we start to see the Supreme Court revisit um, uh, the legality of the death penalty. And, the, and mm. the Supreme Court strikes it down in 1972 in Furman versus Georgia. Um, now, as we're going to discuss in a few minutes. It brings it back four years mm. later, but there's a moment of, of there's a moment of real reform in the United States. We often think of the 1960s as a period of almost failed revolution and failed promise, but there are actually reforms that occur, especially in the early 1970s, mm. that especially with the benefit of hindsight now, 50 years later, seem quite significant. And this movement against the death penalty seems to be, you know, the high watermark, if mm. you will, was 1972. The death penalty might have been more unpopular then than it is, or, or less popular then than it is now, although I question how popular it really is now. Um, but but so we get this, we, we, we get this movement in the 60s and 70s, I think, to, to reform it, that, that bears some fruit. I mean, would you agree with that, yeah, David? Yeah, I, I would. I mean, so, you know, in the lead up to, to Furman versus George, actually, the number of executions drops pretty dramatically uh, in, in the in the 1960s, um, I think actually in the period immediately before from Georgia, there were no executions in the United States. And I think part of this is, as you point out, this sort of public sentiment against it, the idea that there were alternatives to execution, the idea that on a global scale, lots of countries were moving against capital punishment broadly, at least the countries that we were comparing our, the United States was comparing itself to then. Um, you know, there's some Cold War elements to this about what it is it that makes the United States a civilized society. One of the things, you know, and moving against capital punishment was was part and parcel of that. Uh, the Furman uh, decision is an interesting one, though, uh, because it's a 5-4 decision for the justices um, voted in favor of, of saying that the, the death penalty was fine. The five who said it was not fine each issued like their own opinion, basically about what it is that that they that they objected to it. Two of them said they said 
death penalty is inherently cruel and unusual. It's immoral. We should stop it. And three of them said there are actually specific things about the ways in which states were conducting the death penalty that we object to, not the death penalty in and of itself. Uh, and so that's what sort of leads uh, a few years later for the Supreme Court reconsidering this, uh, you know, when, when states address those concerns from those particular three justices about the, the mechanisms of, of how the death penalty was, was implemented, the ways in which you know, juries were given instructions about the death penalty, the, the, the kinds of the uh, legal uh, mechanisms rather than the, the punishment itself. Uh, but there is this moment where the United States stops all executions and, and the people who were on death row, uh, all of those get converted to a, to a life sentence. Um, I think, you know, and Furman himself actually, you know, later gets out of prison and works as a construction worker. You know, David, I think there are two other dimensions we need to consider uh, in terms of the uh, reform of capital punishment or the movement against it in the 1970s that are, that are important. And they kind of run throughout this entire discussion. The first is the racial dimension to it. It's quite clear uh, historically and indeed in co the contemporary United States that, that uh, a disproportionate number of those individuals who, who are executed uh, um, by the state are non-white, particularly African-Americans, but not only. And so, so uh, I think people, especially in the context of the civil rights movement, but the kind of uh, movement of racial awakening that, that began in the 1960s just felt that this was untenable. So I think that's an important part of the, of the, the, back, the context for it. The other is in, in an era of criminal justice reform, again, the Miranda warnings come to mind, there's just an awareness that there were a number of, and there have been historically, and this has been demonstrated, simple miscarriages of justices, justice that have that have occurred, and uh, miscarriages of justice are always terrible. But they, they, you know, they, if somebody's been executed, you can't make it right. Whereas, mm. of course, if somebody's been unjustly convicted and sent to prison, you can release them from prison. And so I think that those two things were important elements. They've always been part of the story, but I think that they were important, an important part of the context in terms of the movement for reform that we saw in the 60s and early 70s. Why was capital, that being so, why was capital punishment brought back by the Supreme Court in 1976? Uh, so states made some, ref the, you know, thinking about those three justices who said the they didn't have an objection to capital punishment uh, as cruel and unusual, but it was about the specifics. It was very much about the specifics of the mechanisms in Georgia um, and a couple other states that were prepared with um, the, the the Furman case. Um, you know, it's about the the process of of the jury uh, deciding whether or not to apply the capital punishment after the conviction for, for, of the crime. It's about how capricious it was. It was about uh, those kinds of, of jurisprudence issues rather than um, the actual punishment itself. So it's about sort of the, the, the lead up and mechanism and having enough appeals and all these other kinds of rules about which crimes were subject to capital punishment and which ones weren't uh, and the power that juries and judges had. Uh, so it was about a whole series of reforms that states made in response to the very specific things that were in those uh, three uh, concurrent opinions um, that then led the Supreme Court to reconsider. David, before we move on and look at kind of things since 1977, mm. I, I want to ask you something as a historian of the Civil War. And I want to, again, I, I think it's important to make clear this is not an exercise in, in uh, kind of regional bias mm. um, or, or, or uh, calling out the South as exceptional. Uh, well, the South is exceptional in this. Uh, so, mm. so doing the reading for, the, for this podcast, you know, it's quite clear that in terms of the states where capital punishment remains um, on the books, most likely to be enacted, where more people are executed, you know, Furman versus Georgia, Atkins mm. versus Virginia. These, it's most common in the states of the former Confederacy. Do you have any thoughts for why that is? And again, I'm, I don't want to engage in kind of facile stereotyping. I think it's an important question and I don't have the answer. I'm hoping you might have some oh, thoughts oh, well, because I of mean, your the, expertise. The, Sort of the, the 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 obvious answer is that this is a a, a legacy and a, a a both 
slavery and ongoing sort of white supremacy in the South. That that that, as you point out, that the, the death penalty is disproportionately um, inflicted upon upon uh, racial minorities, among African Americans, among Native Americans, uh, among um, immigrants, um, and uh, I think the South has, um, you know thinking about sort of the, the trajectory of, of different kinds of punishments that you have in the South and, and where capital punishment fits alongside those. You know, in the late 19th century, uh, capital punishment ramps up in the South as you have the uh, formation of more sort of institutionalized uh, penitentiaries in the South alongside um, convict uh, leasing, which becomes extraordinarily prominent, especially in places like Georgia and in places like Texas and in places like Louisiana, um, which in and of themselves are, are a kind of death sentence, right? If you think about what the, the life expectancy of, of an of, of a inmate who is uh, sentenced uh, to, 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 to labor, you know, the number of those people who die uh, while laboring is quite high. And so, so there is a sort of... Uh, unofficial kind of death sentence embedded within that. And that exists alongside uh, widespread lynching, you know, which exists as extra legal executions, but often happened with the consent, if not the participation of, of law enforcement, of judicial authorities, you know, the, the, there are so many stories of, of black prisoners being broken out of jail to be executed by, by, by a mob where it's clear that, you know, the people guarding the jail allowed those things to happen and, and that they were, uh, you know, active participants in the uh, execution outside of the, the tradition, you know, what we think of as the, the sort of formal legal processes. Uh, and, and these are implements of, of terror and control that, that are, are, are key and parcel of, of making white supremacy happen. Um, and that was true in the late 19th century. And it's true uh, to uh, a large degree in the, in the 20th century. I think there's, and, and today even. Um, so I think that, that there's a long legacy of, of, of seeing the death penalty as an entirely legitimate way of, of, of deterring crime. Whether it is a defective deterrent is a different question, but that's the way it gets perceived. Yeah, I mean, there's a kind of paradox here, isn't there? Because, um, in, if one maps, if one maps executions as well as the places in the United States where violent crime was at its highest, and violent crime was a problem in the United States, it was mm. particularly pronounced, say, from the mid to late 1960s down to 1990, approximately. But if you look at where where crime was most rampant in the United States, or violent crime was most rampant in the United States during that period, it was big cities. It was New York. It was Detroit. It was Washington. Mm. Well, these were in places where either the death penalty wasn't practiced or it wasn't practiced very much. Uh, by contrast with where we see the death penalty being most pronounced, yeah. where there wasn't as much violent crime as in other parts of the country. Well, the, the death penalty proponents would say that, that you're making their case for them. They say, right. look, if only New York City had had the death penalty like Donald Trump wanted, we wouldn't have had these cases of violent crime. Right, um, right, sure. Uh, now, that doesn't, people who have studied this, uh, criminologists have found that the death penalty is not an effective deterrent, uh, in part because the vast majority of people who are convicted of murder or convicted of, of serious crimes are not given the death penalty. Uh, so it doesn't appear to be a deterrent. Uh, and it doesn't appear to be a cost savings over keeping people in prison uh, for the rest of their lives. It, in fact, it costs multiple times more to execute them than it does to keep them in prison. Because of the system of legal appeals. And, 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 and what have you and, and the implements uh, of it. So um, yeah, it doesn't, the, 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 the racial dimension of this, I think, is really throughout American history has been, been, been quite pronounced. This is a, a, a punishment that is reserved, um, not exclusively, but in large part for, for people who are disempowered in, in all kinds of other ways in society. And um, even uh, 
particularly uh, even those white people who tend to be executed tend to be poor. I mean, if there's one correlation, it's, 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 it's that very few wealthy people are executed of any race. And, and the vast majority of those who are executed tend to be those who don't have very much money. Oh, to be sure. I think that the quality of, uh, I mean, one of the, the tragedies of this whole story and their tragedies is, is that the, the people who are most likely to, to, to be, uh, executed in the United States are people who have, um, who, who are minorities, who are desperately poor and can't afford good legal counsel, who do not receive good state-appointed legal counsel. And there's lots of examples of, of, of lawyers falling asleep in trial and, and these kinds of things, and the people ending up with with the death penalty, and people who are suffering from mental illness. You know, and I think the, the 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 Venn diagram of those things, and looking at the list of people who have been executed uh, in the United States, especially in the, in the 20th century, is quite quite profound. Well, it's interesting that in Atkins versus Virginia in 2002, the Supreme Court said that you people with mental illness or with intellectual disabilities, I think it's the phrase that, mm. that they use, could no longer be executed. Now, now, the fact that they could be executed prior to 2002 is, is quite striking and yeah. proves your point, but, but yeah. that's an interesting... And, and um, the question about sort of what the threshold is for for that is, is of course. you know, like the, the thresholds tend to be, be quite quite uh, pr- pronounced. Um, yeah, likewise, the, you know, the threshold for insanity has always been, you know, a very, very high one to meet. Um, and the threshold for your uh, legal incompetence has also been been very hard to sort of meet that standard as well. Um, the Supreme Court has made other recent moves against the death penalty. The the one that comes to mind is the the prohibition against executing people who committed crimes as minors, uh, which happened until fairly recently. Um, I mean, one of the things that's quite striking, thinking about the past twenty years, is there's been a, uh, and this puts the the. Donald Trump's decision in, in some context. Um, there's been a move against the death penalty, even in places where the death penalty uh, seems to be quite common. Uh, Texas, for instance, used to be the the, the uh, state that executed uh, the most people. Um, in 2000, they executed 40 people, uh, and last year they executed three. Uh, so that's a, there's a fairly massive reduction in the number of executions that are happening across the United States, but even in the states where it is common. And a number of states have, have either abolished the death penalty or have placed uh, moratoriums on it. Um, so the, the Trump decision seems to be very much against the grain of, of where the country has been headed in recent years. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a tribute. I mean, several law schools and, and there are a number of um, quite um, courageous and pioneering lawyers and, and law professors who've set up innocence projects where they and their students have, have done a lot of research on miscarriages of justice and brought these to light. Um, and I, I mean, I, I can't remember the details and that's unfortunate, but you know, Illinois, that, it was a project like this project. Yeah. The innocence yeah. project, but that led to the moratorium in Illinois, for example, where a Republican governor of Illinois said, you know what, we can't do this. You know, mm-hmm. I, 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 in theory, I support the death penalty. In practice, it's just not working. And 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 I think that um, those projects have, have really been effective. And um, so I think that's contributed to it. The other thing is people don't often recognize this. Violent crime is actually pretty low in the United States right now. Um, and, and, and there are a number of reasons for that. So the kind of high crime rate of uh, crime rates of the 1970s and 80s and the danger in U.S. cities is U.S. cities are not as dangerous as they used to be. And so uh, there are a number of reasons for this. The the sociologists and criminologists can can explain this. One factor is demographic. There are fewer young men than there used to be just because of the the, the, uh, shape of the population. And, you know, young men, you know, if you have lots of young men between the ages of 15 to 25 of all races and all Mm. backgrounds, they just get into trouble. To varying degrees. And so if I can finish, this goes to so so Trump's the advert you began with Trump's statement in 1989 about the Central Park Five is quite telling, because, of course, on one hand, that was of that moment, New York in the late 80s. Right. And and but on the other, it seems to me this is yet more evidence of the fact that Trump's worldview and Trump's mindset 
is very much of another time and another mm. age. You know, so he not only wants to go out with the spate of executions, to leave office with the spate of executions, he wants to bring back the firing squad. Yeah. Which is, well, I think, so I think he's, he's got this 1950s mindset, really. Well, yeah, Sorry, thinking David, about I, that support for the death penalty, I think it's in part about what the actual crime rate is. And I think it's partially about what the perceived crime rate is. You know, and I think uh, Trump has been articulating a worldview in which he's he's claiming that crime is much more rampant than the statistics actually indicate. And I think lots of Trump supporters think that there is a lot more crime than than maybe that there is. Um, yeah, I think it's about the the fear of 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 theoretical crime that's as 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 as, as much in play here as anything else. I think you're right. I think you're um, right. So we, we will see. I mean, I think the, the likelihood is that when uh, Joe Biden takes office um, in January, that, that the, the likelihood is that the United States will then halt executions, at least on, on the federal level. That seems to be the, the trajectory. Um, so, so one hopes that this uh, spate of executions is, is, at least for those of us who are opposed to the death penalty, one hopes that this is a, a last minute uh, aberration. Yeah, there were no executions during Obama's two terms. So one would right. expect that there will probably not be uh, federal executions, I should yeah. say, that, that there won't be any under. And, and, and three under W and uh, none under Clinton and none under Bush Sr. and none under Reagan. Uh, so, right. Uh, what, what are the most important executions in American history, Frank? If you were to sort of list, I mean, obviously we, we, the United States has executed a lot of people, but some of these are, are historically pretty significant. Where, where would you? Yeah. Okay. This is, one? this is a grim list, isn't it? Um, I mean, I think the, the Salem witch trials would have to be uh, near the top mm. of the list, uh, both in terms of scale and scope, uh, taking them kind of chronologically. Uh, famously, Nathan Hale is executed as a spy by the British during the American Revolutionary mm. War. Hale is the one who says, I regret that I have only one life to give for my country. Uh, we don't remember John Andre, who was executed in Benedict Ar by the Patriots in Benedict Arnold's treason plot to the same extent that we do mm. Nathan Hale. I think those are, they, they're outliers, I guess, in, insofar as they were being executed for espionage during wartime, mm. which is a slightly different category. I think the executions um, in Virginia in, in the, at the turn of the 19th century for Gabriel's Rebellion are pretty significant. What, what do you, I mean, th those are the ones that immediately come to mind yeah. from, from my, uh, own, my own period, but uh, so well, I mean, these aren't necessarily in, in order of, of uh, importance, importance yeah. or significance. So I mean, I roughly think chronologically. John Brown's execution is phenomenally important. Um, he is executed for treason against the state of Virginia which is, I think, an interesting sort of framing about sort of what exactly crime they were going to uh, put him up for. Uh, but obviously he becomes, for, for many Americans, a, a martyr after his execution. Uh, for many other Americans, he becomes a symbol of, of the threat that, that abolitionism uh, posed. Um, but I think that's a, a critically important one. Uh, the largest mass execution in the United States, uh, uh, the the execution of 38 Dakota uh, men uh, in, in 1862 and in Mankato, um, I think is, is worth pointing out. This is part of uh, the Dakota War in which uh, is probably too complicated for me to, to explain in great detail, but this is uh, seen um, by, by many people as one of the sort of great stains on Abraham Lincoln's record that he uh, authorized this, this mass execution. Uh, to Lincoln's credit, there are originally, I think, 300 people that were originally sentenced to be executed, and it gets reduced to 38, but uh, it's still um, a milestone. Uh, the execution of Sacco and Vanzetti in, in 1927, I think, is critically important uh, in terms of understanding the, the American uh, uh, aversion to uh, both immigrants and radical ideologies during the 1920s. Um, yeah, I think Sacco and Vanzetti are important because... Uh, they were, it was certainly widely believed both at the time and certainly since executed in large part for their political beliefs right, uh, because right. they were the anarchists of their crimes, right? right. Uh, because of their, their anarchism. And we see, you know, some of the famous executions during the 20th century are, are of uh, people whose political views are, are seen as yeah. radical, if you will. 
Um, and, and probably the most important uh, in the 20th century might be Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who are executed in 1953. Uh, and with that one, in, they're executed for espionage, for um, supporting the Soviet Union. Uh, many people believe that, that Julius may have been guilty of that, but Ethel was executed largely as a co-conspirator or a, a sort of an accomplice, even if her, her involvement in the actual espionage ring seems to have been uh, pretty, pretty minimal. Um, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting laundry list of, 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 of places where, where this does, you know, these are things that come up in, in our lectures that we give to undergraduates. So it's, it's a bit important part of American history we need to sort of reckon with. Right. We are running out of time. So I think it's time for last drops, Frank, what you got? Yeah, it's good. Let's go, let's, let's go to something more pleasant than, uh... yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're gonna, so we apologize because this has been a pretty, uh, grim, grim topic. So now we're going to change the tone. In mm. fact, we both have last drops related to sports. Uh, so, so now welcome to F WFAN. This is Frank and David in the morning zoo with traffic on the threes. Um, so mine is, I want to observe the, um, the, the passing of the Pawtucket Red Sox. So there's a reform going on, a big reform plan of minor league baseball that Major League Baseball announced last week. It is all yet to be approved and so on, but it seems pretty likely that the Pawtucket Red Sox, who were the AAA affiliate of the Boston Red Sox, uh, based in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, so they were nice and close to, to the, the parent club, are to be no more. So the Pawtucket oh. Red Sox officially existed from 1970 till 2020, although there was no minor league baseball season in 2020. So really they played their last game in 2019 and the Red Sox are moving their AAA affiliate even closer to Boston to Worcester, Massachusetts. So mm. good luck to the new Worcester Red Sox. The Pawtucket Red Sox are particularly dear to me because my, my parents lived in, my grandparents rather lived in, in uh, Cranston, Rhode Island. So we used to go and see them um, uh, occasionally. I'd go with my grandfather to see the Pawtucket Red Sox and they played at a stadium called McCoy Stadium. I don't know whether you've ever been there, David, um, yeah. which was a not terribly glamorous stadium in Pawtucket, but it was, it, it was dear to my heart. It was built in 1942 um, and it was the home of the, of the, as I said, the Pawtucket Red Sox from 1970 to 2020. Uh, but yeah, so uh, I want to, I want to observe the passing of the Pawtucket Red Sox. They were, however, what McCoy Stadium in Pawtucket was the home of the Cleveland Indians AAA affiliate prior to being the home of the Red Sox. So David, I think that relates to yes. your last we drop. Just, just announced that the, the, the Cleveland baseball team will be dropping their nickname uh, for next season. I don't think they've announced what the replacement is yet, but I think it's a, a good note to, along with the other teams that the Washington uh, NFL team and other teams that are abandoning Native American names. Um, it's good to note that the passing of the, the Cleveland team, I'm hoping they adopt the old name, the Cleveland Spiders. Right. Uh, until next week, Frank. Cheers, David. Cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.